0: Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Ward, author of Planet Narnia. Several times in previous episodes, the topic of cosmologies has arisen, and I thought the one guy I could get that I need to get to talk about it was Dr. Ward. He wrote a book some time ago that really impacted Lewis scholarship called Planet Narnia. In it, he describes how important a medieval cosmology was to C.S. Lewis and additionally how that impacted his work in things like Narnia and the Ransom Trilogy. If the topic interests you, I can't recommend Planet Narnia enough, and I also want to recommend one of my favorite books off the canon shelf, Angels in the Architecture. Pastor Wilson applies the best of the medieval worldview to the Christian life and practice. Last but not least, don't forget to jump into the canon app. Find it in your app store of choice. It's a huge audio library of Christian content and edification. Not to mention Doug's talk show, Man Rampant. And in fact, today, on this Tuesday, we just dropped a new episode featuring E. Michael Jones. Don't miss it. Go find the app store of your choice, search Canon Press, and download the app today. All right, everyone, without further ado, meet Dr. Michael Ward. All right, now welcoming on special guest, Dr. Michael Ward. Michael Ward is a senior research fellow at Blackfriars Hall, University of Oxford. He's a professor of apologetics at HBU and a writer and a speaker. Dr. Ward, thank you so much for taking the time to do
1: this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jake. Of course, of
0: course. So, as I was talking to you, one thing that I hoped that we could accomplish in our discussion. Is maybe a starting point would be the cosmology of C.S. Lewis and and why it was important to him. Um, It it seems like a very foreign concept. It is one that was foreign to me until I read your book, Planet Narnia. Um, And then you had a subsequent book, The Narnia Code. Maybe just as a pure jumping off point, as as folks can get introduced to you and, and your book, could you tell us a little bit about that book and what it sought to accomplish?
1: Planet Narnia is a book in which I argue that the seven chronicles of Narnia, Lewis's best known works, are imaginatively, symbolically structured according to the seven heavens, the seven planets of the medieval cosmos that C.S. Lewis knew about as a medieval expert and wrote a great deal about, not only in his academic works, but also in his poetry. And in his other fiction, his his Ransom Trilogy, for instance, and when he came to write Narnia, he used these seven heavens, these seven spiritual symbols, as he called them, to shape and color each of the Narnia Chronicles. But he did so implicitly, silently, secretly, so that we're not invited to, as it were, uh, look at or consciously recognize these seven spiritual symbols. We're rather just thrown into them and immersed in in these seven different symbolic systems. So that's the the basic argument of planet Narnia. And the reason Lewis was so interested in cosmology was largely because he was an expert in the 16th century. And of course, it was in the 16th century that the new cosmos, the the, uh, geocentric cosmos, began to displace the old heliocentric, the sun-centered cosmos. When uh, Copernicus came along in the middle of the 16th century, and argued that we go around the sun, the sun doesn't go around us, and that theory, the Copernican theory, was later proved to be correct by Kepler and Galileo when the uh, telescope was invented at the beginning of the 17th century. And C.S. Lewis was interested in this because he wanted to see what kind of impact the Copernican revolution in astronomy had in the literature of the period. I mean, Lewis. Although very learned in cosmology and astronomy, was not a physicist. um, He wasn't a cosmologist. He was a literary critic, and he he just wanted to see how this change in the cosmological background uh, affected the way people imagined their place in the universe, and therefore the stories that they would tell.
0: Now, before I I want to jump right in, but in terms of the pain point of your thesis, also seemed to be a sense of uh, when critics would read. And especially none other than uh, his good friend Tolkien, there seemed to be sort of a mishmash of elements about Narnia. Did that play a role into in some of your motivation of figuring out is this just a mishmash or is there something that holds us together? could Could you describe that aspect of it?
1: Yes, that was a major aspect motivating me to explore this question. You know, I'd enjoyed the Narnia Chronicles for many, many years, and I had already appreciated that they could be enjoyed at two levels as a simple story, and as a set of um, biblical allegories or, you know, suppositions, as Lewis called them, various uh, correspondences between things in Narnia and things that we find in the Bible. But the biblical parallels, though very clear in three of the books, are not so clear in the other four books. You know, in The Magician's Nephew, we have a Narnian creation story. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we have a Narnian gospel story. And in the last battle, we have a Narnian apocalypse, the book of Revelation reworked for the Narnian world. But the other four chronicles of Narnia didn't seem to align very obviously with, with major elements or episodes in the, in the life and the ministry of Christ. So that made me begin to think, is there some other governing structure that Lewis might be using, some other imaginative blueprint that accounts for the differences in the books a bit more satisfactorily? And I wasn't the first person to ask that question. Lots of other scholars actually had gone looking for some additional level of, you know, structural logic to the books. And all sorts of different theories had been suggested, like The Seven Deadly Sins or The Seven Books of Spencer's Fairy Queen. Any seven that people could think of, basically. (laughs) But amazingly, the one seven, which is all over Lewis's works, The Seven Heavens, The Seven Planets, um, had not been considered until I happened upon it when I was halfway through my PhD researches into Lewis's imagination. And once this idea occurred to me, it seemed to account so well, not only for each Narnia Chronicle, but for the series as a whole, and for the place of the Narnia Chronicles in the rest of Lewis's output as a writer and thinker.
0: Now, maybe one last question in reference to the books before we we do a dive into the medieval cosmology. As maybe people are hearing you talk about this, and they think I've read Narnia several times. You know, I don't necessarily remember much about, or at least have a large theme about planetary influences per se. You mentioned that it sort of colored it. How do they relate to the
1: stories? It is not obvious, and that is why it it took many decades for anybody to to work out this mystery. But that the the unobviousness of it is 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 part of the the very plan. Um, Because here we need to step back a moment and address a distinction in Lewis's thought, which was absolutely crucial to him. And it's the distinction between contemplating something from the outside and enjoying it from the inside. This was a distinction that he discovered in his 20s. And he writes about it in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, describing it as an indispensable tool of thought. And it revised his whole theory of consciousness. Uh, and it's hugely central to his whole output as a writer. So to contemplate something from the outside is to to look at it from a distance. Lewis talks about looking at a beam of light in a, in a dark tool shed, for example, as a symbol of what he's talking about. But you don't just have to look at things from the outside. You can step inside them. And so he imagines himself stepping inside this beam of light and looking along it from within. And as he points out, When you look along the beam of light, you no longer see the tool shed and you no longer even see the beam of light because you are inside the beam and you see that which it illuminates, the the crack at the top of the door through which the light is streaming. You can see the leaves on the tree waving in the wind outside. Millions of miles away, you can see the sun itself. That's the difference between looking along something from within and looking at it from without. Because when Lewis looked at the beam of light from the side, all he saw was a strip of dusty light. He saw particles of dust floating in the sunbeam. It lit up a patch of the floor. And that was a wholly different experience. So, he revised his whole theory of consciousness after he discovered this distinction. He said, it's not enough just to think that we're either unconscious when we're asleep and conscious when we're awake. No, when we're awake, we have two different modes of conscious experience. Either contemplating things from the outside or enjoying them from the inside. And when you're enjoying something from the inside, there's a certain kind of necessary and inevitable invisibility or hiddenness by virtue of the fact that you are inside the experience. It's a little bit like, you know, the fish in the sea doesn't know that it's wet. Right? Why not? Well, because the fish in the sea is in its own element. That is where a fish is meant to exist. An amphibious creature, on the other hand, an amphibious creature that can live both on land and in the sea, will know what it means to be wet because it will have the dryness of the land to contrast with the wetness of the sea. But we as human beings are, and this is where it gets theological and interesting from a Christian point of view, we as human beings, we live and move and have our being in God. You know, I'm quoting there St. Paul in Acts 17. We live and move and have our being in God. We we don't know anything else. There's no other way in which we can exist except as creatures of God, whom He has made and whom He is sustaining in existence. If we try and step outside that enjoyable knowledge of God, we are basically stepping into the void. We're ceasing to exist. So, in one very important sense, this is Lewis's basic theological point: we already know God at this enjoyable level. Before we know anything else whatsoever, hmm. before, before we even have a contemplatable knowledge of God, because of course we can also contemplate God. We can have ideas about God. We can look at the person of Jesus Christ, for instance, as the incarnation of God. You know, so he becomes a feature in our in our own cosmos, not just the ground of the cosmos. And that's why the doctrine of the Holy Trinity is so absolutely crucial for Christians. God is both. The Father, in, in you know, the transcendent Father, whom we cannot see, and He is the incarnate Son, whom we can see, and He is the Holy Trinity, who binds together Father and Son.
0: Now, one way I think you talk about this, and then you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think you coined Donagality, or was that Lewis that coined Donagality?
1: Lewis coined that term. He used Donegality as the term for describing the the peculiar qualities of the place Donegal in Ireland, which was one of his favorite places to go on holiday. And he said, it's very difficult to describe the spirit of a place, Mm -hmm. the Donegality of Donegal or the Londonness of London. But when you're (laughs) in those places, you know what you're talking about. You would never confuse Donegal with London. And so, yeah, this idea of a quality, an enjoyable atmosphere that, you're, that you know from inside, but can't easily identify in verbal form, uh, that's another aspect of this, this whole distinction.
0: Now, jumping into Lewis's uh, sort of medieval thought and, and the influences on him, most people are going to know Lewis from the Screwtape Letters, Mere Christianity, we've been talking about Narnia. But there's this whole other side of the spectrum of his work. And I have in mind the, the Cambridge series, I suppose, Allegory of Love and, and the rest there. Could you introduce us to that side of, that, of, the, of the spectrum of his work?
1: Yeah. A lot of people don't really realize that C.S. Lewis wasn't a professional writer of fiction, nor was he a professionally a Christian apologist. He was professionally an academic who taught for about 30 years at Oxford, and finished his career at Cambridge as the first professor there of medieval and Renaissance English. So he was a fabulously learned man in, in the whole canon of Western literature. And um, yeah, he wrote many books on, in, in those fields. He, he wrote a book called The Allegory of Love. He, he studied Milton's Paradise Lost in great depth. His biggest book was English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama. <laughs>
0: Why, um, why do you that, think he excluded drama?
1: Oh, well, p- partly just to keep the book within bounds, <laughs> uh, you know, so that he wouldn't have to discuss all of Shakespeare's plays, for instance, but also because he was more interested in poetry than drama uh, generally. He, he wasn't a great theatre goer, for instance. But anyway, I mentioned that book, The English Literature in the 16th Century, in the context of this discussion, because it, it opens with a long treatment of the new astronomy that came in in the 16th century because of the Copernican. Revolution, which I mentioned earlier. So, you know, his magnum opus, this book that it took him for 15 years to write, opens with a long discussion of this new astronomy, as he calls it, which shows us, you know, how very important he thought it as a matter of intellectual history. And if we look at his last academic book called The Discarded Image, hmm. we find that that not only has a long chapter all about how the heavens were understood in the medieval period, but it also has a fascinating epilogue all about cosmological models and how they differ from period to period. So it was a hugely important subject for him as, a, as an academic, as well as a writer and poet.
0: I, I'm reminded, I think it might be either in the medieval essays or uh, also further in the discarded image, where he talks about the difference between a modern man who walks outside of his door and looks up Versus a, a medieval man who, who would walk out and, and look up. Can you talk about that, about the differences there?
1: Yes, that was a, a very big thing for him. Uh, trying to get into the mindset of the pre-Copernican cosmos. When you definitely thought that your planet, the, the Earth that you we were, sta- we were standing on as a medieval person, was static. It wasn't rotating around the sun. The sun was rotating around it. And when you looked up, you were really looking up into the heavens. You weren't just looking out into space. So this is a subject that he talks about a good deal in his academic writings. But is also interestingly uh, put into more narrative and dramatic form in in his novel Out of the Silent Planet, um, when his hero of the story, a character called Ransom, uh, he looks out of the, the the window of his spaceship. He's being kidnapped and taken to Mars, and um, I'll just read you a. A paragraph, if I may. Please, from please. From The Silent Planet. So Ransom, we're told, becomes aware that a nightmare long engendered in the modern mind by the mythology that follows in the wake of science was falling off him. He had read of space. At the back of his thinking for years had lurked the dismal fancy of the black Cold vacuity, the utter deadness, which was supposed to separate the worlds. He had not known how much it affected him till now, now that the very name space seemed a blasphemous libel for this Empyrean ocean of radiance in which they swam. He had thought it barren. He saw now that it was the womb of worlds. Whose blazing and innumerable offspring looked down nightly even upon the earth with so many eyes, and here with how many more? No, space was the wrong name. Older thinkers had been wiser when they named it simply the heavens, the heavens which declared the glory. And he's alluding there, of course, to Psalm 19: the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork. So so that's a very powerful passage and it's indicative of the, of the importance Lewis had to changes in cosmological models the difference between space and the heavens
0: so this this particular uh, for lack of a better word I'm going to say the this tool that he used in terms of at least ho- hoping to give his readers a, a look into the mind of the medieval imagination which again you as you read illustrated there in terms of when you look up it's not just this vacuous, empty thing that's sort of terrifying, but but it is radiance and, and alive, and it's the heavens. What exactly is Lewis, if Lewis were to pick up that tool and start beating a bad idea with it, what is it that Lewis is trying to defeat with not only that trilogy, but I think a ton of his work, as you as you showed Narnia too?
1: Yeah, well, I think he's got a number of different targets in mind. One of them is is just a kind of reductionistic materialism. Uh, The idea that when you have identified the chemical constituents of a thing, you know, and weighed it and measured it, how big it is, how fast it's moving, when you've asked all those questions of the physical sciences, that you have said all that there is to be said about an object. And, you know, he summarizes this very pithily in one of the Narnia books, the, uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where you remember in that book, Eustace, the boy from England, encounters a, a star, a, a living star who's a real person in that world. And Eustace says to the character, uh, in our world, in England, a star is just a huge ball of flaming gas. And the star replies and says, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. And you see there, you know, summarised and condensed with beautiful simplicity. Perfect. uh, This idea about reductionistic uh, materialism. Eustace has been taught to think that once you've identified what a star is made of—so much gas and so much rock, moving at you know such and such a speed at such and such a distance from the sun—that you've said all there is to be said about it. And Lewis is not at all, you know. casting shade upon the physical sciences he's he's got nothing to say against those questions in themselves you know the how question how does this thing move what's it made of where is it in the sky those are all valuable questions he's just wanting to remind us that they're not the only questions and that other questions like who made this who has it been made for why is it there what does it mean those questions which are Psychological questions, theological questions at the height, they're also worth asking. So Lewis is just wanting us to, as it were, get back to a, a healthier position when, as in the pre-Copernican period, astronomers could ask both the why questions and the how questions at the same time.
0: So essentially, Lewis is calling our minds back to that, back to that sort of imagination that... Uh can at least house a lot of what our Bible tells us anyway. If someone were to say, well, that's all nice and good, but I mean, the Copernican re- revolution checks out factually. So in, in a sense, Lewis is wrong. I mean, how how do you, how do you, squ- I know you have a section on that in your book. Can you tell us how you square that? If, if is Lewis just factually wrong here and therefore the edification is sort of brought to nil?
1: Lewis is by no means questioning the factual accuracy of the Copernican Revolution, you know, as he says in the discarded image, after having spent many, many pages discussing the pre-Copernican cosmos, he he says, my readers will be wanting to remind me that this old cosmos, however beautiful it may have been, had one significant fault. It was not true. (laughs) And Lewis says, yes, it was not true. But he then pauses and says, well, we've also got to ask ourselves what we mean exactly by truth. And that's where these other questions come into play. The, The why questions, the who questions, the questions of meaning, because this is to take us back to the Out of the Silent Planet passage that I read. There's always this, as he puts it, this mythology that follows in the wake of science. You know, it was a very correct and proper scientific advance that Copernicus made when he argued that the earth goes around the sun, the sun does not go around the earth. Lewis has got nothing to say against that at all. But there is this mythology that follows in the wake of the Copernican revolution. And by mythology here, Lewis means something which is misleading. The mythology is, as I mentioned, that of materialistic reductionism. The idea that the only questions worth asking are they the how and the what and the where questions. That's an unscientific deduction or conclusion drawn from the scientific progress that Copernicus made. And that's what Lewis is wanting to to argue against.
0: Mr. Ward, do you think that moderns have a cosmology? A- and by have, I mean, in the, maybe even in the sense of, you know, telling a, a fish it's wet. Do moderns have one? And, and why is it Saturn, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> or Saturn nine i suppose
1: yes i mean there for readers who listeners who might might not know what you're referring to there saturn was one of the seven heavens of the medieval cosmos and saturn was associated symbolically with with old age and death and pestilence and mostly negative qualities and i don't know myself that lewis would necessarily want to say that the modern cosmos was characterized by those qualities necessarily but one of the things that he enjoyed about the seven heavens as spiritual symbols was that they provided seven different frames of reference seven different lenses through which you could assess reality not just the the bleak saturnine pair of spectacles but also the tranquil magnanimous kingly and festive lenses that you could uh, see the world through. If you adopted the spiritual symbol of Jupiter, of Jove, if you experience things jovially, likewise with the other five of the seven planets, they each have their own particular color scheme, as it were, their way of framing things and interpreting things. And so if ever we're inclined to assume, you know, rather preemptively that no, things are just bleak and meaningless... Well, we should we should not think that the universe is Saturnocentric, centric, fixated upon Saturnine qualities. We should remember there are other six there are another six ways of interpreting reality.
0: Do you think you know? I I, I know you're in the UK now, but I know you spent some time in Houston, and I shudder to think about the cosmology of Houston, Texas. <laughs> is there anything as you if uh, if you had to maybe present this to a group of university students who have never considered these kinds of things would you would you attempt to sort of cast a vision for their cosmos that maybe they are operating under unbeknownst to them
1: yeah well I think what Lewis does in the discarded image is is a very useful strategy he, he there just points out that different people at different times have viewed the cosmos very differently um once upon a time our cosmological model was was geocentric. Then, thanks to Copernicus, it became heliocentric. Then, thanks to Newton, we had the idea of Newtonian mechanics and, and the three laws of motion, or whatever they are. I'm no scientist myself; I don't <laughs> pretend to understand these things scientifically. And after Newton, you know, the great advance was that of Einstein. And as Lewis points out in the discarded image, we we should respect each and every one of these cosmological models because they were all sincere and serious attempts to, to get into the paradigm, all the relevant information that a given generation uh, believed that it had. And our own Einsteinian cosmos, though it's now you know, thought to be you know, solid, reliable, scientific fact, will almost certainly be overturned at some future date. Some new Einstein will come along in 200 years, 500 years, whenever it happens, and make some epoch-shattering discovery, which puts the Einsteinian model in the shade. And people will look back and think, how could people ever have been so superstitious as to believe what Einstein thought?
0: <laughs> the dark ages so, they were.
1: <laughs> exactly. So that's, this is Lewis's point, that we need a kind of humility before our parad- paradigms, our cosmological models. And we should respect each of them while idolizing none of them. That's good.
0: That's really good. The The holidays are sort of encroaching. Uh, the week that this podcast will come out it is Thanksgiving week here in America. In terms of uh, the year that we've had globally, in terms of 2020 and sort of just you know a nightmare <laughs> that we've never yet woke up from, you know, I I was thinking I would love to title this episode by Jove. Um, mm. Do you have thought in terms of uh, maybe maybe even just an encouragement uh, for folks in terms of uh, making sure that our holiday celebrations are under that right influence or or maybe under that particular influence of Jove? How how would you talk about that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean. As I said, Lewis wanted to argue against those who believed in a Saturno-centric universe and who exalted Saturnine qualities above all others. And it would be a similar mistake, in a way, to, um, to concentrate exclusively upon Jupiter. You know, Jove, though he is the most important of the seven heavens from a medieval standpoint, and the one that Lewis thought was most in need of being imaginatively rehabilitated in the in his period Jove is again only one of seven right and so you know we we mustn't think that we can only be rubicund and jolly um, that would be to make a similar error but on the other side of the picture you know we've just got to respond appropriately to to each Situation that we're met with, and if, if we're met with something which, which is bleak and, and horrible, as so much of 2020 has been for so many people, then, um, well, one thing that we can learn is, is, the, is the good aspect of the Saturnine character, and that is to develop the contemplative faculty, to see into the heart of reality, to gain a kind of wise and penetrative insight, undeflected by superficial appearances to the contrary. Um, that's the, the one gift of Saturn that is positive. All the others are negative. So, you know, Lewis was a, a very realistic kind of man. He he knew that there's plenty of darkness and bleakness in this world, and he, he had very little patience with those Christians who, you know, stuck a fatuous grin on their faces and thought that the, the only Christian way of approaching reality was to smile and smile and smile. Well, that's not true. You know, Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. And, and so there's a place for grief and sadness and lament in the Christian life. And we shouldn't be ashamed of it, but neither should we idolize it. Neither should we think that is the be all and end all of, of reality because, well, as I've been saying, there are six other ways of perceiving reality right. according to these, these seven spiritual symbols.
0: Right. As we kind of wrap up here, I a few questions for you in terms of your book. It's been a few years since it's been published. I've always been fascinated for authors as, you know, they published a thing and as time happens, has your perception of the book changed? And I don't mean necessarily that like, oh, I don't like it anymore. But, you know, how do you think of, in hindsight, how do you consider the, your book, Planet Narnia? H- have your, maybe not views changed, but maybe emphasis changed or or any of anything of that nature?
1: I wouldn't say there's been any significant change in my view of it. No. Um, I've been pleased to make further discoveries in support of the argument. And uh, I published an article or two about that, you know, filling in some of the corners. Sure. Um, if your listeners are interested, um, go to go to a, an unexpected journal for uh, an article I wrote called, um, I think it was entitled Return to Planet Narnia or Planet Narnia Revisited, something like that, where I detail some of my subsequent discoveries. So, Yeah, the the thesis, I think, as I've reflected upon it over the years since writing the book, uh, has, in my view, only consolidated itself and and shown its um, accuracy. And I'm pleased, I'm very, very pleased, so pleased, uh, delighted, really, that it's still being read. Uh, I don't know if you ever go on the Goodreads website, but... Yes, I'm pleased to see that Planet Nine is is still being read on Goodreads every three or four days. Someone new posts a review of it, and I'm I'm just thrilled and delighted that that should be the case. You know, now twelve years after the book came out,
0: it seems like, and and you mentioned the the decades from Lewis's publication of the Chronicles to your book, and, and sort of this illumination of the tectonic plates that sort of hold the Chronicles together. I'm curious in terms of how it's affected you in terms of your writing, you know, there's a side of me that thinks, you know, you had the opportunity and the privilege to sort of write about this huge insight. Is it hard to write books now unless it's sort of a like huge insight kind of thing? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning? You know, I wonder, uh, like anyway, does that make sense?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it does. And I, I sometimes reflect upon this by comparison with, uh, you know, an actor who has a big hit at the start of their career, you know, think of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet in their early 20s with Titanic, Right. you know, just about the biggest film in the history of cinema, and they're, they're never going to be in anything half as big as that again. Um, and so you might say that the whole of the rest of their careers would be anticlimactic. But that's, of course, not how it turns out. The, you know you you discover other interesting things which you know may not have the same hugeness of impact and, and get on everybody's radar but so what you know it's not just quantity it's quality you know this is this is one of the major things that lewis is trying to teach us in his cosmological writings that you know it's not just what a thing is made of and how big it is but you know the effects that it has and the the colour that it enjoys so and so on and so forth So, you know, I've got other strings to my bow, and uh, the book that I've been working on most recently is a study of Lewis's The Abolition of Man, uh, his most philosophical work. Uh, So, my study of that is coming out next year, in 2021. It's going to be called Men Without Chests, a guide (laughs) to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. Perfect.
0: Well, that's super exciting. 2021, uh, do you know, are we looking soon or or late 2021? Hopefully, uh, in March. Okay.
1: And it's going to be published by a new press called Word on Fire Academic.
0: Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Everyone go check out Planet Narnia. You also wrote a subsequent sort of a lower shelf, uh, maybe you could say a book called Narnia Code that also gets across that thesis. And we look forward to Men Without Chests. Michael, thank you yeah. so much again for taking the time. I really appreciate you.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Jake. I've enjoyed it.
0: Thank you, sir.